Father, that's our prayer this morning, that we would be close to you, that we would be near to you, that we would take our place at the foot of the cross depending upon you. And we know that you use this time as we hear from you in the word of God to that end. And so it's my prayer as Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians that this gospel, this good news of Jesus would not come to us in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, full conviction that we're sinners, with full conviction that we have a Savior who is greater than all of our sin. And we look forward to seeing you, Jesus, and to hearing from you in the book of Luke. Teach us through your word, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts during this next hour. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. I have a question for you. Question time. Is there a difference between joy and happiness? Well, it it depends on how you define happy. And we tend to define happiness this way by asking questions like this. What gives you the greatest happiness? Or what were the happiest times of your life? Right, And so we think about that trip to Kauai, uh, the birth of a baby, or your wedding day. And so typically we connect happiness to, to, in our culture to circumstances. We attach happiness to uh, our five senses feeling good. And so sometimes... The idea of happiness is this bare emotion because of a physical stimulus like chocolate or coffee, preach it, or a warm hot tub, right, Pastor Chris? Or less chaos. If that's the case, if happiness is physical stimulus, bare emotional physical stimulus, then... Happiness is way different than joy. Joy has to go beyond circumstantial emotional happiness because the Bible says you can be sorrowful in your circumstances and yet be rejoicing. Here's the proof, 2 Corinthians 6.10. Paul speaks of himself and he says, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So, Joy is way beyond simply bare emotion. But listen, joy has to include the emotions. Joy is not mere happiness, but joy includes this happiness. So joy goes way beyond spiked emotions based on physical circumstances that are real. But joy is settled emotions based on our spiritual circumstances that are just as real. So what is joy then? Well, I like the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology at this point. It's pretty good. He's, uh, the dictionary says this, quotes, Joy is a delight in life that runs deeper than pain or pleasure. It is a quality of life and not simply a fleeting emotion. It is grounded in God Himself and flows from Him. In quotes. So where does true joy come from? It doesn't come from self. It doesn't ultimately come from circumstances. Yes, there is a level of true spiritual joy from experiencing God's gifts. But the greatest joy... The the source of everlasting joy, the source of lasting joy comes from knowing God through Jesus Christ, from experiencing and 
marveling in the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And that's what the 70 discovered. The 70 evangelists that were sent out by Jesus ahead of Him, healing and casting out demons and proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come near in the person and work of Jesus Christ and calling people to repentance and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, that brought them great joy. They came back to Jesus and they were filled with joy in their ministry. Take your Bibles and let's see this as we continue our exposition of the book of Luke. Turn to Luke chapter 10 and find verse 17. Bobby read this to set the context. Our passage this morning will be verses 17 through 24, Lord willing. (laughs) And notice as I read that the 70 evangelists come back and they are filled with joy. And Jesus Himself rejoices. But ask yourself the question as I read this passage. What is the source of lasting joy? Ask yourself that question. Verse 17. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And He said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, He rejoiced. Now Jesus is rejoicing. He rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise You, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in Your sight. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, And who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And turning to the disciples, after He rejoiced, He said privately, Blessed, happy, blessed are are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them. And to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. And so here is the message of this passage. As you and I work in our appointed fields ripe with harvest, rejoice. Rejoice in God's great salvation. Not in our success. That's the theme of this passage. You see, there is a joy. There is a lesser joy when we see results. Whether it's in our evangelism or at this church or in our ministries that God has given us, it's not sinful to rejoice in those results. It's, it is a joy to see darkness subjected to the name of Christ. It's a great joy to see people pass out of death and into Life, darkness, and into light. And so the 70 returned with joy. Let's read about it again. The 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And look at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to You. At the beginning and at the end of this passage, it's bracketed by a spiritual subjection of the dark forces. This is a spiritual, not physical, ultimately, interpretation of everything that I'll read that they were rejoicing about. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents 
and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you. And so the 70 evangelists, they are pumped in the healing. They are pumped that the demons are subject to them. They are excited. They are filled with joy at the repentance and the fruit of the proclamation of the near of the kingdom of God being near in Jesus Christ. People were being saved. And it's a spiritual rejoicing in, in these things. And Jesus Himself isn't disagreeing with them. There is a, there is a joy there. In fact, in verse 18, Jesus says, I was watching fate, Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I think this is, we could preach eight sermons on every phrase of this passage, so I, I apologize, but... I think there is a sense in which Jesus is alluding back to Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12 at the fall of Satan out of heaven to the earth in pride. Where Isaiah 14 and verse 12 says, How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne of the stars to the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. And so that context in Isaiah is a is a king of Babylon, full of pride. But we know how the scriptures work. Uh, that 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 this king of Babylon was a pattern of Satan's fall and his great pride over heaven. And I think that Jesus had this in his mind, but he meant more. He is saying like a bolt of lightning, I saw Satan humbled to the earth, but he's now on the earth and his minions are on the earth. And you go now to attack, to attack that kingdom. And I have given you authority to do that. And, the, and, and Satan has fallen. And this, this passage is saying, I was seeing again and again as I saw you minister, I, as I saw the demon's subject and people passed out of death to life like lightning, the gospel has come to you breaking the darkness. I saw it. It is something to rejoice in. The first fall and the unleashing of the kingdom of God and Christ that we're seeing, it's falling like lightning in your ministry. I think that's what he's saying. This is in the background. You know, I love lightning storms. My wife knows this. I love watching lightning storms come in from my deck. I love to see that flash of lightning and the sound that comes from heaven to earth. And I'm telling you, when someone comes to Christ, the kingdom of darkness is falling like lightning. There's lightning. Bolt of lightning, Satan's kingdom takes a fall. And in the Greek, then another fall. And another fall every time someone comes to Christ. And so this is the issue. It's a spiritual assault of the enemy of darkness. And just like these 70 are sent out metaphorically as lambs into the mouths of metaphorical wolves, so also... The scorpions and the snakes here are not literal scorpions and snakes, but this is speaking of spiritual redemption and spiritual being set free from spiritual forces. And so the darkness are the scorpions and the snakes, the demonic forces that we wrestle against. Do we not wrestle against the demonic forces as we preach the gospel, or do we wrestle ultimately against flesh and blood? So how exciting it is to see people come to salvation and like lightning struck in the power of God in the midst of the darkness. To have that success in the Word of God. To see Him working. To see the enemy hindered. To be protected by the power of God. To see answered prayer. It's a source of legitimate joy. To see this success of the kingdom above, among men. To see joy in those results. Joy in the success of our mission. But Jesus goes on to say, our success and joy in this mission doesn't even compare to the deeper source of lasting joy. That's where He goes. See, this 
ultimately any horizontal joy that we have in this ministry. It's not the source of ultimate joy. But what because what happens if you don't have success? What happens when you go through the valley of the shadow of death? What happens when you're martyred and not rescued? So anytime our joy is connected even spiritually to the success of what God is doing through us, there's a tendency for pride. There's a tendency for the very thing that caused Satan for the first time in Isaiah to fall like lightning from heaven. Focus on the horizontal. Instead, our focus, our joy, should be on our Lord Jesus Christ and the great salvation that we have through a sovereign triune God that He actually came for us that we're actually saved. And so, finally, we turn to our outline. The source the ultimate source of lasting joy. There are three in our passage. Number one, and they're all aspects of God's great salvation of us. Number one, the security of our salvation. The security of our salvation. Look at verse 20. Jesus unpacks some things. They're rejoicing at all of these results. Nevertheless, Do not rejoice, verse 20, in this. And he says it again. That summarizes everything he said. That the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice, and it's a command. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Security of our salvation is the source of lasting joy. Don't rejoice in your success. Rejoice in the security of your salvation. Now, i got to get into the Greek here a little bit because it's wonderful. Rejoice that your names have been written. It's called a perfect passive. Don't even write that down. What it means is it's been done, that writing has been done in the past. Your names have been written in the past. You know when? Are you ready? Before times eternal. That's when. Not yesterday. Before times eternal, your names have been written. That is, God wrote them. It's passive. You didn't write. God wrote them before times eternal. Wow. Micah and Brandon and Nancy and Amy Your names have been written in in heaven, have been recorded in heaven. That perfect tense means it's a fixed state. It has been forever written. One commentator says it, it your name stands written. That's a good translation. Where? In heaven. Nothing on earth can touch heaven. Satan's fallen from there. Nothing on earth can change that. Rejoice, he says, and continue to rejoice that your salvation in Christ, listen, is secure. It's secure in heaven. It's a fixed state of salvation. It cannot change. Now, this place of writing is theologically called the book of life in this passage. So just listen, maybe write these references down. Let's just unpack this. It will come about, this is Isaiah 4, verse 3. Isaiah 4, 3. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. Or Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 says... Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at the time, your people, everyone, everyone who is found written in the book, 
will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Or we could talk about Malachi 3.16 about this book of life. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. Does that sound uncertain? They will be mine. On the day that I prepare my own possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Or we come to the New Testament in Philippians 4. Verse 3, about this book of life. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared in my struggle and the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Guess what the next verse is? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Clearly, Paul had our passage on his mind when he wrote Philippians. Or, we come to the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, just the culminating passage in the book of Hebrews comparing to the old covenant or the new covenant. And listen to these words in Hebrews 12, verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to a blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command if even a beast touches the mountain it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the assembly, general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of of Abel, and even in the last book of the Bible, in Hebrews chapter or in Revelation three verse five, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. What is an overcomer? An overcomer is one that has been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, has been forgiven of their sins. An overcomer, 1 John 5 verse 4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. In 1 John 5 verse 3, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Oh, people read that verse in Revelation so wrong. It's so much confidence there. The overcomer is the believer. And he says, I will never ever erase your name from the book of life. The most emphatic way to say that he'll never erase your name from the book of life that you could ever be written in the Greek language. We have security of our salvation because our names have been written before times eternal in the book of life. That's a source of great joy. I mean, can you imagine the joy of being, having Jesus look you in the eye as one of the 70 and say, hey, rejoice. Your name has been written in heaven. Come on. That would be pretty. Or, imagine the thief on the cross who has been broken by the power of the Spirit sees a dying Savior bleeding and has come to faith in Him. Without any works, He's nailed to the tree. 
And the bleeding Savior looks him in the eye and says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Do you think that gave him some joy and confidence? There is no greater joy than certainty about salvation. The security of our salvation. Every major religion of the world, except for biblical Christianity, you have no certainty of salvation. You work and you strive and you earn to become a son. To be justified in the future. Maybe. Maybe you'll be accepted by God. You can never really know that you have shalom. That you have peace with God. You can never really know that you're loved and accepted by God in Christ. And that you're going to heaven. I'm going, to be, I'm going there. This is the true official teaching of Roman Catholicism. The official teaching. Any good Catholic who knows their doctrine and the teaching of the church cannot ultimately know that they're going to heaven. And they have right now a deep shalom peace with the thrice holy God. They would have to say no. And I'm telling you, that's not good news. That's not good news for sinners. That's not the gospel. It's not good news if we have to earn and earn and earn to be accepted by God. We're going to fall short of the glory of God. There's no joy in there. You know it. A lack of assurance is only misery. Am I right? No. <laughs> Jesus says, let me tell you. You want to know what you should be happy about? That your name has been, it stands, written in heaven. Four times eternal, which brings then to a deeper source of joy, which is going to be hard for many of us maybe to hear today. But we're going there because the text does. What stands behind the security of our salvation? Number two, cause for joy, the sovereignty of God in our salvation. Why? Because if your name was written in heaven before times eternal, guess what your salvation isn't about? You! It's about grace. Now, this is amazing. So put your seatbelts on and listen carefully. The so-, so number two, rejoice, lasting joy in the sovereignty of God in our salvation. At least three times in the Bible, the Bible actually says that Jesus wept. I'm sure he wept more than three times in 33 years. Right? I'm sure Jesus rejoiced many times in his life too. Right? It was filled with joy that was produced by the Holy Spirit in respect to his humanity many, many times, I'm sure, in his life. But the only time in the Gospel records where it is said explicitly that Jesus rejoiced is right here in our passage in Luke chapter 10 and verse 21. That's it. And it's an over-the-top word for rejoicing. I mean, they they say rejoice greatly. I mean, how else do you translate it? Rejoice greatly. Well, B.B. Warfield says that, quotes, the word is a strong one and conveys the idea of exuberant gladness, a gladness which fills the heart. Very difficult to translate the joy that Jesus had in the Holy Spirit at this moment. So let's read about it. And I want you to tell me what your one word would be to sum up these verses. Okay, here we go. At that very time, verse 21, He rejoiced, this is Jesus now, He rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, quotes, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in thy sight. And he goes on. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. And who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom, who, to whom the Son wills, or better, as the ESV translated, chooses, the Son chooses 
to reveal Him. So, let's find out what Jesus is getting exuberantly happy about. Answer, yes, there's a rejoicing in the salvation of sinners, that people are turning to God in repentance, they're believing in His promised Messiah. But it's much more specific than just saying that, the source of His joy, if we're true to the text, isn't it? Much more specific about our salvation than this. I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Why does He praise the Father? That. There's the reason. That. He's given the reason. That you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. And that you have revealed them to infants. So God is revealing and hiding these things. What are these things? The person and work of Jesus. That the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus Christ in the context. The stuff they're proclaiming. The gospel truth. And so, what Jesus is rejoicing in here, and by the way, isn't it cool that the Holy Spirit is mentioned? And the Son is mentioned? Doing the things that the Father does? And the Father is doing things. The Trinity, the triune plan of salvation is here in a nutshell. And so Jesus, in respect to His humanity, has, He's overjoyed in the triune God's sovereign plan of salvation of sinners like us. Jesus rejoiced that those who are wise in their own eyes, they had it all figured out, the scribes, the, the Pharisees, the leaders of the day, they're filled with pride like Satan was when he fell like lightning, filled with self-sufficiency, trusting that their works were good enough, their family name as a Jew would save them, they were not broken and humble over their sin. He rejoices that the truth was hidden from them. Now, so Jesus, it doesn't, Jesus has had a lot of opposition in his ministry, and he is pretty excited that the kingdom is advancing according to his Father's plan. But understand, Jesus is speaking and rejoicing in the sovereignty of God in salvation in this passage. Let's look at it a little further. Look at verse 22. All things, I don't like that translation. The Greek text is all. All have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one, it's people, a no one is a person. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone, anyone is a person. The all there, it's a people. Jesus is going even underneath and deeper into the sovereignty of God as he, as he speaks in verse 22 and rejoices in the truth of verse 22. So I would submit that verse 22, the all have been handed over to Jesus by the Father. There's a transfer here of this people to the Father. You see, before times eternal, when were your names written? Before times eternal, before times eternal, the Father gave a people to the Son and said, will you go for them? Will you take upon flesh for them? Will you live for them? Will you die for them? Right? And it's like He goes and He, he, he dies and He rises and all authority is given to them. We're getting a taste of the bolts of lightning that we see here, but the authority comes in, in full measure at the death and resurrection of Christ. And Jesus is rejoicing in this plan that it's being worked out. I'm going for them. I've set my face like flint to go to Jerusalem to die for them, to live for them. The Spirit is working here. People are passing out of death and into life. And He's rejoicing in this. And by the way, 
it's interesting that the father is doing the revealing to the infants in verse 21, but then we've got in verse 22, the son is doing the revealing. Uh, and so there's a unity here in the essence of the Father and the Son and the purposes of the Father and Son and the Spirit is here. This is, this is the Trinity in a nutshell and Jesus is rejoicing in the sovereign plan of God for our salvation, which brings me to the wise and understanding in the infants for just a minute. Now, Infants, the wise and the other understanding, we've already explained that a little bit. If, and come back next time because Jesus unpacks it in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who the wise and understanding are and, and, and who the infants are in this passage. Just like the serpents and scorpions and the lambs and the wolves, it's metaphorical. The infants is. So you've got the wise and understanding. They have their salvation all figured out. But then God's pleased to reveal right? To whom he will, but he's pleased to reveal to what? Infants. So what is the infants referring to? Is it physical infants? No. This is spiritual infants. Now, I have a grandchild. Her name is Elsie. Just a few weeks ago, she was learning to sit. And, and it was recounted. We got up to 22. She sat for 22 seconds before she face-planted. Now, Max, her great protector, would catch her before she face-planted because she's an infant. So, infant is not really referring to stupidity or something like that. What, what, what Jesus refers to is, is in infancy is one word. It's dependence. It's dependence. That's what Jesus means by infants. Spiritually dependent just needy. I need you, God. I'm broken. I need you. And that's who God is pleased to save in His sovereignty. So that's the wise and the understanding. And that is the infants. And this is good news for us. And this is what Jesus rejoices in. Because the only people that will be saved are those the Father has willed to reveal and whom the Son has willed to reveal. And make no mistake about it, you're never going to be able to say, I was a little smarter than the next guy. I had it figured out. At least I. That's not how salvation works. And Jesus rejoices in that. It's God's sovereign choice to reveal the triune God to you. You are not a bit smarter than your neighbor. The Bible says that you're dead in trespasses and sins, buried six feet under spiritually and dead, and that, and that in the flesh we cannot please God. And faith is pleasing God. And God must come to you in the day of His power and the Son must reveal the Father to you according to the good pleasure of His sovereign plan of grace. Look at the ESV. They translate the good Good pleasure as His gracious intention. It is grace. Oh, it's only grace that saves sinners like us. Let me ask you a question. Did you cause yourself to be born again? Are you going to take some credit for your salvation? No. God in the day of His power opened your eyes that you might what? See your sin and see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the one who came. He gave you new ears so that you could hear. Did you be, the sheep hear the voice of Christ and they come. Did you become sheep because you believe? Or do you believe because you're of the sheep? Now, Jesus is rejoicing all over this truth of the sovereignty of God and salvation. This is the shock of this passage to me. Because we don't. We don't. We don't. You know what we say? Often, and I said it for a while, and when I first came under this understanding of really God's plan of salvation. <laughs> That's not what? Come on. That's not fair. Fair. 
It's not fair. Well, what's fair is that every single one of us gets eternal hell. That's fair. To think that our names have been written before times eternal in the book of life. And not because of something he saw in me, but according to the kind intention of the praise of his good pleasure, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, he came for us, gave, gave a people to the Son, and Jesus went, not for just, just an idea, no, He came for a people. He died for real sins. He saved a people from their sins. He came for you. He came for me. And the Spirit and time came and opened up our eyes to see the glories of Christ. And He brought us into saving grace. God doesn't look down the corridor of time to see who would be smart enough to believe and figure it out and then say, good job on the basis of seeing their faith, then choose them for salvation. That's the only other option we have. Who, gets, who shares part of the glory then? You say, man, I, are we still responsible to believe the gospel? This, he's been preaching. These 70 have been preaching. Shaking dust off feet. Calling people to Christ. Well, Matthew also writes about this account. And he writes, it's shocking what, what Matthew says about this account. Don't turn to it. Just listen. Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Clearly, that's God's sovereignty and salvation. Correct? And Jesus rejoices over the top over that. But the next verse is this. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden. Which is what? Being like an infant? Being like a little child? And I will, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble and hard. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in salvation. Sandwiched together without explanation, without apology, and without, I want to add this, without contradiction. You say, I don't get it. Join the club! But God is sovereign in our salvation. Praise God or we'd never be saved or we'd lose it. And you are responsible to come and I will call you to come with tears streaming down my face. Come! I'll tell you why you came when you get here. The fleshly response sometimes, it wasn't true in my life, to the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation is that's not fair. Paul writes about this in Romans 9. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? You're going to say, it's not fair, Paul predicts. He just says, on the contrary, who are you, old man, to answer back to God? The typical response in all of our lives, if we are honest, and even now, to God's sovereignty and salvation, is that's not fair. But I would submit to you that, the, that, that we have to Stay there until we rejoice. We have to press into the sovereignty of God and salvation until we rejoice. The only time that's recorded in Scripture that Jesus rejoices greatly is when He rejoices in the triune God's sovereign plan of salvation for sinners like us. 
that he rejoices in the plan of God to secure a bride for the son. That he rejoices in the plan of God to secure the sheep for the shepherd. That he rejoices in the plan of God to secure the members of the body for the head. That he rejoices in the plan of God to secure a people for his own glory who according to his grace would gather around the throne men and women from every tribe, every nation, and every kindred and every tongue and would rejoice forever in the sovereign plan of God to reach out into the slime and into the deadness and was pleased to reveal the Son of God and the salvation of sinners like us. And this makes sense because in the context, pride and success, pride of Satan and falling like heaven can also be the same kind of pride that says that's not fair to the thrice holy God. And he's saying we all need to be as little children come under and receive from the Lord. And so, the proper response to the sovereignty of God and salvation, come on, is what? Joy, yes, but let's put it in words we can understand. Why me? I can't believe it. Why me? I'm a wretch. I can't believe my name has been written forever in heaven. I'm going to heaven. Unbelievable. Praise. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. That is the joy that should fill our hearts, this exuberant joy. And that's what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 1.26 that Bobby read. And just listen to how Paul brings the teaching of Jesus together. For indeed, Jews, this is verse 22, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that He may nullify the things that are so that no man may what? Boast before God. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, what? Boasts in the Lord, and that's what Jesus is doing. He is boasting in the Lord. The sovereign plan of our salvation. So the great source of our rejoicing is God's salvation of us. The security of our salvation, the sovereignty of our salvation, and finally, and in three minutes, the sight of our salvation. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. He's saying to his disciples, can you believe that you're seeing me? <laughs> the Messiah is here and the, the darkness is falling like lightning. The kingdom has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's, you get to see this. The 70, you saw, you're seeing Satan fall like lightning and people pulled out of darkness into the light. You're seeing the dawn of a new age. And here we are as Christians. And we, we actually are on this side of the cross. Jesus is setting His face to go to Jerusalem. Do you realize that Jesus Christ died? That Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. He has conquered your death. 
and He ever lives to intercede for you. He's already made it to heaven. Heaven, you're tethered to Him. What confidence we have. What we have seen in the Gospel of Christ. The revelation that we have. All finished. The beauty of it that we hold on our hands. Oh, the great source of joy is the current sight we have of the Savior right now on this side of the cross. Blessed are our eyes, brothers and sisters. Blessed are our ears, for we have seen and heard great things. Yes, rejoice when someone gets saved. Yes, rejoice when prayer is answered. Yes, we rejoice with new frontiers for equipping leaders international. And new areas of ministry and deepening of ministry in Sierra Leone. We rejoice in all of that. Any success we might experience through the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But true lasting joy is found in the security of our salvation because of the sovereignty of God in our salvation. And day by day, as we unpack the Word of God from this pulpit in our personal worship, that we actually can see, that is, behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a joy it is to be a child of God. Amen? Father, thank You for this passage. We did not do it justice. There's so much here, but we're thankful we're thankful for the things we did see. And I'm sure we have questions, Lord, especially about your sovereignty and salvation. I know it's difficult. If there's someone here struggling with that doctrine today, that would you give them patience and, and even give us all balance to preach the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man without corrupting either because it's what your word teaches. Oh, Lord, we admit we're not God and we are thankful for it. Because only you can save sinners like us. We know that in our own hearts. But we're thankful because you came and got us that we're in the double grip of the Father and the Son and we cannot be lost because of your power that keeps us until that day. Oh, Lord, that is a great hope. And I, I pray, Lord, as a church, in this time of transition, in many ways in the life of this church, that we in deeper and deeper ways would find our joy and in the Lord. The joy of the Lord may be the strength of this church. Solidify us, Lord, in our security in your great salvation. Help us to understand and rejoice and be filled with joy and thanksgiving that you would come after and save sinners like us. And Lord, ever give us eyes to see more and more of the beauty and glory of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for leaving us the book of God. Thank you for indwelling us with your spirit. Help us, Lord, to be filled and to move forward together as a church in the days and weeks to come. May the joy of the Lord be the strength of Grace Community Bible Church. We pray these things in Jesus' name.